You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Midtown. In this series, we are following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we may experience true flourishing. Well, peace be with you. What a joy it is to see you all this morning. I know it's uh, been a cold, cold, cold week, um, but it's a, it's a joy to gather together as the people of God, to sit under the Word of God, to be reminded of God's goodness and His grace towards us. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to dive into today's uh, text and sermon. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness and your kindness towards us and allowing us as your uh, people to gather together and sit under your Word. And I pray for those who are here today who maybe are just curious um, about Jesus, that you would allow uh, me to speak with clarity uh, so that they can have a picture of what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. I pray for those who are hurting, who feel alone uh, today, who belong to you, Lord, that you would just speak uh, um, over them today and remind them that they are not alone, that they are part of your family and that you love them. And you know them intimately. You know when they sit down or when they stand up. Um, you know the number of hair of uh, of numbers of hairs that are on their head. We all are seen and known by you. We are remarkably and wonderfully made. And more than that, Lord, you are remarkable, and we worship you. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right. All right, so in 2003, America suffered a pretty uh, big blow, and it was uh, something that was uh, nationalized, it was seen on TV as Space Shuttle Columbia, and the final 16 minutes of its descent back into Earth's atmosphere um, disintegrated. It was a, a painful blow. And the saddest part of the Space Shuttle disintegrating is, of course, that there were seven members on the, uh, on the spaceship, and each of them lost their lives. At the time, the NASA administrator said this, quote, the crew had performed their mission brilliant, brilliantly. Even so, their loss was something we never get over. And many of us, we know that feeling of a sudden loss when someone passes or, or dies, and it's unexpected. And every time that happens, and even as a nation, as many people observe that happening, it reminds us of just how fragile life is. Each of these precious and accomplished people, just like that, as they were preparing to celebrate a successful mission, were gone. And this points us back to last week's sermon, as we looked at what's called Jesus' Olivet Discourse, where he had been teaching on the end times. And then that discourse over and over, Jesus reminded us of um, how history um, can come to a climactic and sudden stop. It can, and this can happen surprisingly soon, or it can be surprisingly delayed. But one day Jesus was going to return. And no matter how brilliant you were, no matter um, who you were, you are going to have to give an account of how you lived. If I was to summarize that uh, parable or those parables that we looked at last week, in a sentence, it would simply be this. 
Live as though Jesus is coming back today and plan as though he is not coming back for a hundred years. Live as though Jesus is coming back today, but plan as if he wasn't going to return a hundred years. In other words, make sure that you are prepared to go the long haul in your faith. And today we're going to see that Jesus wants us uh, to truly become his disciples and his apprentices. And we do that by striving towards righteousness and by seeking God's kingdom, regardless of the circumstances. Those who belong to the kingdom of God are those who have the presence of the kingdom in their heart and it shows in the way they live. Last week, we ended the sermon by looking at the parable of the talents. And we looked at how one person was given five talents, another person two talents, and another person one talents. And how the person who was given five talents that invested their talents and the one who was given two talents and invested their talents um, were rewarded by God and called good and faithful servants because they took what they were given and they entrusted it to the Lord. They took a risk. And as a result, God blessed the way that they live. But the person who had one talent buried it and he made excuses and talked about how he was afraid and how Jesus essentially showed that that person was wicked. Well, today, as we look at this, uh, what's called the parable of the sheep and the goats, which is really a a quasi parable, it's more of a metaphor. uh, We're going to see what it looks like practically to invest those talents. Jesus is going to give us his last kind of a discourse to a crowd, his last parable. And this parable is going to be a hard hitting one. It's literally going to be a parable about separating the sheep from the goats, true disciples from false ones. And to summarize this passage, we can do it this way. On the day of judgment, those who prove to be disciples of Jesus will be those whose lives showed that they took the suffering of his people seriously. Or to put it plainly, disciples of Jesus take the suffering of his followers seriously. And there's two main points that I want to do, and then two points of application. The first main point that we're going to look at is that Jesus will return and he will judge every person in all nations. And then secondly, we're going to look at Jesus will return and separate true disciples from false ones. And under the second point, we're going to look at what's the difference between a true disciple and a false one, a sheep and a goat. Who are the least of these? As there's been great debate over who are the least of these. And then thirdly, why does Jesus identify so much with the least of these? And then we're going to close with a time of self-examination and some practical ways to love the least of these. Y'all ready to rock? For sure. Let's get it. All right. Verse 31, Matthew writes, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the king, all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the earth. So uh, the first thing we want to look at is that Jesus, when he returns, he will return as a judge 
of every person and all nations. What a, uh, a climactic scene. This is at the end of the world. The son of God returns and he's returning. Not how he came the first time, meek, mild and lowly, but he is returning as the king of the universe, as the king of the world. Verse 31 says that he's going to return in glory. In other words, in splendor, in beauty, and even in him, in his face, in the way he moves, in the way he talks, we're going to see his intrinsic value, his intrinsic worth is going to be made public. The book of Revelations explains it in a most glorious scene that we're just going to see him in his beauty. And he's going to sit on a glorious throne. And the Bible tells us that all nations will be before him, and there's going to be a separation between sheep and goat. Those who are sheep are going to go to the right on his right hand, which culturally um, was a place of honor, was a position of, of power. And those who are goats are going to go to the left, which was culturally for them a place of dishonor, a place of judgment, a place of shame. Look at verse 34. Then the king, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by the father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And so those who have been blessed by the father are those who have uh, received the kingdom into their heart. There are those who have repented of their sins and who have accepted the invitation of Jesus to follow him, to be disciples of his and to make disciples. And the reason that they are blessed is not primarily because of their works, though this chapter is going to emphasize their works. The reason that they are blessed is because they have responded by faith to the grace of God. And this response to the kingdom by faith to the grace of God is going to show and be evident in their lives. And so second, we're going to look at now Jesus will return and he will separate true disciples from false ones. And in this text, there's a metaphor, and it's sheep and, and goats. And what's the difference between a sheep and a goat? Well, sheep have 54 chromosomes, and goats have 60. I'm just joking. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's true. <laughs> they also can mate together, though they're seldomly successful. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. In this text, we want to answer the question, what's the difference between sheep and goat? And it doesn't have to do with chromosomes, though they are very similar. And here's the difference. In verse 40, the difference between a sheep and a goat comes down to good works towards the least of these. I'm going to read the entirety of this passage, and then we're going to kind of uh, uh, give a, a summary of it. So listen to this. Verse 35. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you a stranger and take you in and without uh, clothes and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? In verse 40, and the king will answer them, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did to me. 
Verse 41, then he will also say to those on the left, these are the goats, depart from me, for you were cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't take me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me sick and in prison and you didn't take care of me. Then they too will answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? Then he will answer them, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so last week we looked at a parable of a faithful servant versus the parable of a wicked one. The faithful servant, when the master was away, was faithful in everything the master did, and he treated those who were servants under him well, while the wicked servant, when he found out that the master was delaying, he mistreated everyone, and he squandered the master's wealth on himself. And then we looked at the story of um, the wise maidens versus the foolish maidens. And the wise maidens, they had oil, and the foolish maidens, they didn't bring oil with them to wait for the bride, uh, for for the groom. And then after that, we looked at the parable of the talents, the one who was given five, the one who was given two, and the one who was given one. The faithful uh, uh, stewards were those who multiplied what the master gave, and the faithless steward was the ones who buried it. And once again, Jesus has given us two categories, either those who are sheep, those who are goats, either those who are faithful or those who are faithless, either those who are good stewards or those who are not good stewards. And we see in this passage that Jesus separates the sheep from the goat, and he looks at it as the sheep are those who do good works towards the least of these, and the goats are those who do not. But the question is, who are the least of these? And in verse 40, Jesus is pretty clear that the least of these are those who took care of his brothers and sisters. And he says, you treated my brothers and sisters as you treated me. Now, throughout the book of Matthew, We see Jesus using this term uh, for brothers or some translations say brothers and sisters. And just about every time this term is used in the book of Matthew, it's uh, talking about a spiritual kin, those who are disciples of Jesus. It's not talking about brothers and sisters um, uh, within humanity in general, right? Like it's talking about specifically those who are disciples of Jesus. And whenever it talks about the least of these in the Gospel of Matthew, it speaks of um, those, once again, who are disciples and those who are being persecuted for being disciples of Jesus. So here, when Jesus talks about taking care of those who uh, who are hungry, who are thirsty, who are in prison, who are naked, he specifically is talking about disciples of Jesus who are suffering and hurting, and in need. Now, if in hearing that, you take a deep breath and you're like, praise God, I might be a sheep after all, because I'm cool with taking care of Christians, but not the poor in general, you still need to check your heart. Because in the gospel narratives, we see uh, Jesus doesn't just take care of those who repent and become disciples of his, but Jesus has an affinity towards the poor in general. Um, We see Jesus feeding a multitude of more than 5,000 men, not including women and children, even though he knew that many in the crowds would not follow him. We see Jesus healing lepers 
in one text, even though um, only a small margin of them, when he heals 10, would come back and say, thank you. Uh, We see Jesus uh, constantly being kind to people who are hurting, healing without um, always giving a theological discourse or encouraging people in a very specific way uh, to, to follow him. So if you hear me saying that the brothers and sisters, uh, that the least of these are brothers and sisters of Jesus who are, are suffering, and you say, that's good, because I don't believe that we should generally take care of the poor, and you, blame, and you see that as like some type of political statement to do so, uh, you need to check your heart. The, Jesus teaches the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan is about loving one's neighbor. And the point of that parable is that one's neighbor is whoever is close to us and in genuine need. In Galatians chapter 6.10, I think the Apostle Paul summarizes the heart of Jesus really well and what he wants for his church. He says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. As a Christian, we need to work towards the good of all. And those who are disciples of Jesus do that, but they have a special affinity to care for those who belong to Jesus. Jesus here in this parable is commanding Christians to take care of each other, knowing that being a Christian in most places would mean being persecuted and culturally isolated. There are 40 nations, at least 40 nations right now, that if you were to go out on a busy street and just hand out uh, tracts or try to encourage people to follow Jesus, where you could be killed or imprisoned or, or isolated. That's the norm around the world. And Jesus is saying, it is, you, you will know my disciples by the love that they have for one another that they are looking out for each other. And we see this throughout the New Testament, Acts chapter 2, 42 through 46, Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Acts chapter 4, verse 42, it says, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. James chapter 2, verse 15 through 17 should be on the screen. And you can see um, the same type of thing being emphasized, that if one says they have faith and um, Uh, but they don't do works. They don't feed and clothe their brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, Their faith is dead and it's dead because their heart is dead. They're not following Jesus. First John chapter three, verse 17 through 18. If anyone has the world's good and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love with word or speech, but in action and and truth. Listen to me. Hear me. Jesus takes neglecting his people needs seriously. In fact, he says, if you and I look back over the sum of our Christian life, and even though we confess faith in Jesus, and we look at our life and all of our resources, our time and our talents have been spent on us, to live a life of luxury, luxury and ease and not towards the mission of God. It's probably because you never truly repented and joined into the kingdom of God. Being a kingdom citizen 
does not mean that you commit to living a, a de-infected uh, um, uh, uh, life, a disinfected life. A lot of people, when they think of Christianity, it's all about just being moral, being a little better than uh, the people who are in the world. Um, that's not holiness. Holiness is not living a disinfected life. Holiness is living as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Holiness is living in the way that Jesus lived. And that's what Jesus is teaching us. And he takes it seriously when his people go without and are persecuted. In fact, you remember the Apostle Paul, uh, before he is Paul, he's on the road um, of Damascus. And his name was Saul then, and he's persecuting the church. And Jesus meets him while he's on his horse uh, traveling to persecute Christians. And he says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? That's how personal Jesus uh, takes it. In verse 35, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. That's what the life of a disciple of Jesus looks like. But those who are not disciples of Jesus, this is what the Lord says to them. He says the exact opposite. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't take me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not take care of me. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends his disciples out for the first time uh, to, to model and to do ministry in the way he was doing it, to teach and to heal and to tell people about the kingdom of God. And he says to the disciples, whoever welcomes you welcomes me. Whoever welcomes you welcomes me. He tells them, whoever gives you a cold drink of water will receive a reward from the Father. Why? Because those who were welcoming his disciples in weren't just welcoming them into their home. They were welcoming the message that they had. And those who gave them a cold drink of water, it was evidence that they were ready to live a life of faith. Why does Jesus like, why does Jesus identify so much with the least of these? And how do we know that he identifies with the least of these? It's because Jesus, when he came uh, to God, when he came into the earth in the form of Jesus, he came in poverty. He came in Nazareth, a poor place. In fact, his parents, when he was born, they gave uh, a sacrifice of two pigeons, which meant that they were at the very low spectrum of the social economic ladder. Jesus, when he came, he lived and moved amongst the poor, the marginalized, and the mistreated. Jesus, uh, when he came, he, he was essentially homeless. He said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus, when he entered back into Jerusalem, he rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey and he ate his last meal in a borrowed room. And when he was buried, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. 
Jesus identifies with the least of these. He identifies with those who are in prison because he himself was a victim to injustice. He was arrested, interrogated. He was not given a defense counsel. He was physically abused and dragged from courtroom to courtroom, and he didn't get justice out of anyone. Jesus. Jesus was naked. Jesus was thirsty. Jesus was in prison. And can you hear Jesus saying, when did you see me naked? I was naked when they cast lots for my garments. I was thirsty when I hung on a cross. I was beaten and imprisoned. And you didn't visit me. Jesus identifies with the poor because his mama was poor. His family was poor. He was poor. But more than that, he created the poor in his image. And he died though he was rich so that we who were poor can become spiritually rich. So my question for you today is, does your life speak to the kingdom of God being in your heart? Does your life speak to the fact that you are seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and that you're not living a disinfected life, but a discipled life, a life that is committed to the hurting and to the hungry because you know that you have bread to give them. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever eats me will never be hungry again. I am uh, the water of, of, of life. Whoever drinks from me will never be thirsty again. Does your life show that you believe that and that you see people who are hurting and you believe that Jesus can meet their hurt? In essence, as we move to our self-examination portion, this text is all about showing us how there is no middle ground. There is no such thing as a lukewarm Christian. Either you are hot for Jesus. And by hot for Jesus, I don't mean like you're you just constantly on fire. You wake up in the morning like, whoo, let's go, let's go, let's get it, let's get it. I mean that you are sober minded in your heart and you are growing in affection for him and you are a disciple so that even when you don't feel like it, you still pick up your cross and you follow him. Either that is your life, despite how you feel, despite your experience, you are committed to Jesus um, or you're, you're lukewarm. And here's the thing. While your mouth may be able to lie, your life does not lie. Unfortunately, we just had a, a famous apologist who uh, died last year, and he was celebrated as an apologist. And his life, what he did in secret, has just been revealed as he was uh, taking advantage of, of women who were vulnerable and, and using them uh, for his own uh, pleasure. His mouth said one thing, but his life did not lie. Your life, my life will not lie. 
And Jesus is saying, if you are going to be my disciples, it's because you're not a lukewarm person. Notice I said lukewarm person because there's no such thing as a lukewarm Christian. Francis Chan in his book, Crazy Love, gives a a lot of uh, bullet points on what a lukewarm person looks like. And I'm just going to highlight a few of these. He says, lukewarm people give money to charity or to church as long as it doesn't impinge on their standard of living. Lukewarm people don't really want to be saved from their sin. They only want to be saved from the penalty of their sin. Lukewarm people are moved by stories about people who do radical things for Christ, yet they do not act. Lukewarm people rarely share their faith with their neighbors, co-workers, or friends. Lukewarm people say that they love Jesus and he is indeed a part of the lives, but only a part. They give him a second of their time, money and their thoughts, but he isn't allowed to control their life. Lukewarm people love others, but they do not seek to love others as much as they love themselves. Lukewarm people will serve God and others, but there are limits to how far they will go or how much time, money and energy they are willing to give. Lukewarm people think about life on earth much more often than eternity in heaven. Lukewarm people are thankful for their luxuries and comforts and rarely consider trying to give as much as they possibly can to the poor. Lukewarm people do not live by faith. Their lives are structured so they don't have to. Lukewarm people probably drink and swear less than average. But besides that, they really aren't very different from your typical unbeliever. God is not calling us to live sanitized lives. God is calling us to live holy lives. And a holy life is a life that is sold out to God, not just in what we do with our bodies, our sexuality, but it's it's a life that is moving towards the way of Jesus. You want to know what the Christian faith looks like? Look at Jesus. Look at how he lived. Look at how he cared for people. Look at what he built his life around, doing the the Father's will and not his own. And I'm afraid that American Christianity is is often a Christianity that is just desensitized and not focused on being disciples of Jesus and surrendering to him in every way. The Christian walk, listen to this, is a walk by faith. And if you can see everything and figure everything out, you're not walking by faith. The Christian life requires courage. It requires dependence on the Holy Spirit. And if your life can be lived without you depending on the Holy Spirit, who is your comforter, who pushes you out into the waters, who pushes you out of your comfort zone. If you look at your life and you're not out of your comfort zone and you don't live sacrificially, hear me when I say this. You may be following a version of Jesus that's all about saving you from the penalty of your sin. And that is not salvation. 
Jesus doesn't just save us from something. He saves us to something. And so as we think about this text, when I ask ourselves, Lord, am I living by faith and not by sight? Am I living to sacrifice my life here on earth so that people who don't know the gospel can hear the gospel? And so that people who are around me, my neighbors, my coworkers and friends who are headed towards eternal separation from your love and your grace and your goodness. Am I living with that in mind, knowing that in heaven I will have luxury I will have peace. I have things that are stored up for me, which rust and moth does not destroy. Or am I living? Tacking Jesus on everything because I think it's the right thing to do and I want to go to heaven. While trying to maximize my pleasure on earth. So how? How does a faith that works look? How does the Christian life look? The Christian life looks like this. It looks like opening our heart up to the Holy Spirit. And I promise when you open your heart up to the Holy Spirit and you surrender all to him and you say, my life is your life, Lord. I want to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. I promise you, as you abide in Christ, you will bear this type of fruit. He will break your heart for the marginalized, for the poor, and for Christians who are suffering and being persecuted. He will break your heart for the things that break his. Here at Sojourn, we have so many ministries within our church that need people to get in the game. We've got new believers who need people to be discipled. And listen, we can programize stuff. And yes, discipleship groups, I'm all for it. But we need Christians who just step up and see someone who's struggling their faith and who just says, man, I want to pray with you. I want to meet with you. I want you to come over the house. We need people who see Um, young men and young mothers who are struggling financially, who want to make a better life for themselves, but, but who cannot to step up and say, the Lord has blessed us with resources. I want to pay for you to go back to school. We want to help with babysitting. We need people with big hearts that care about those who are in this neighborhood and who want to live with grit, who are moving towards neighbors. And in our church, we have a lot of different opportunities. We have ministries where uh, kids are being tutored. We have ministries of mercy where the community is being loved. We have teenagers who um, need mentors. We have things with S2. We have uh, missionaries. We've got a lot of mission uh, families on the mission field. It's incredible. And they work hard to raise their support. And they need people who are willing to say, you know what? I'm not going to eat out three times a week. I'm going to do two times a week. And I'm going to give above and beyond the tithes to the church um, so that I can support this family who is in a, a place where, that needs the gospel. We've got college ministers who are on the campuses of UofL, uh, Bellarmine, Sullivan, um, boys in all kind of college ministries who are raising their support so that the next generation can hear the gospel, 
who needs you to care enough to slow down and to give. We've got a benevolent fund that helps to support Christians. Got one guy that we're working with who I love dearly. I'm so proud of him. And if you're watching, brother, I want you to know that this brother um, was born and raised in a really tough environment, walked into Sojourn one day and uh, has just been getting loved on by some, some members here at Sojourn. He's put his faith, um, his foot forward to walk by faith and uh, been able to walk faithfully with Jesus and overcome addiction. Um, he knew that he had to get out the environment that he was in because of friends and family. So uh, 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 Rafi uh, found a place for him um, out of town where he can go for nine months to just get discipled uh, through a program, learn about Jesus and strengthen his faith. This brother went back to school and got his GE, uh, a GD since being here. This brother has uh, just got his license. He just texted me and said, Pastor Jamal, I've got my permit. I'm about to get my license. When he was here, he was talking about how hard it was for him to keep a job because of the different shifts and working all day and then having to go across town and how hard it was for him to get a job because of his past record. And I would tell him, brother, if you get your GED and if you hunker down when it's time for you to buy a car, my wife and I would not only help you to buy the car, but we would try to find Christians to help you to do so. He texts me almost every week. We text back and forth, and he is living out the Christian life. In the church, we need to live in such a way where the body of Christ is living with abundance rather than scarcity, where we can say, we want to help you. We want to bless you. And every single one of us have a responsibility to live in a way. That's the Christian life. God has not just saved us from something, he saved us to something. And praise God, I see this all throughout our church, all throughout our church. I can literally brag on every ministry in our church and give you stories about people who are living to bless the church. And I didn't plan this, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Amen. Amen. Let me tell you something. Four years ago, five years ago, we really want to press into diversifying as a church. And um, we started preaching on what the Bible has to say about justice, mercy, and race. And we lost a lot of people. And our finances started to show it because they didn't want to hear about it. They wanted a sanitized Christianity that allowed them to stay comfortable without addressing historic issues that have put communities in this country at risk. And it was one family who had been given the means, who looked at me and said, Pastor Jamal, you don't worry about money. You preach the Bible and you stretch us and I'll make up the lack. And for the last five years, every time I've sat down with that family, showed them our budget, asked, do we need to decrease or can we keep going? They've looked me in the eye and said, keep going. And every year they make up the lacks of the body and give above and beyond. By God's grace, we're about to be debt free in three and more than half of that money is going to come from one family. And they don't want to be celebrated. And they're uh, uh, not uh, black or brown. They're white but they believe in the whole gospel. That is what it means to live a kingdom life. We also have a foster ministry. 
uh, that is concerned about orphans. As James chapter 2 says, what is, true relig- what is true religion? True religion is to learn the Bible by heart and to have all the answers. Nope. True religion is to um, obsess over a political party and believe that they can bring and usher in the kingdom of God. Nope. True religion is to love and to care for widows and orphans. That's what James 2 says. In the last couple of years, we've emphasized this ministry of, of loving orphans and, and making sure that um, every a child has an opportunity to, to have a home. And uh, we've moved from 12 families to 25 families adopting. Amy Robertson and her family and Sarah Keywood um, oversee that ministry. And I am so proud of this church and how we've come around those who have fostered and adopted to make sure that needs are met. In fact, I got a testimony from the halls about um, a recent experience they had as they fostered. Here's what it says. We are so thankful for the way God has cared for us through his church body with our new foster placement. Within a few days of receiving the phone call, we have been given more than enough things to care for a baby. Through our friends, community group, and Sojourn's foster care and adoption ministry, we are offered everything from meals to child care, and multiple items were simply left on our porch without us even asking. It is a testament to how um, through the provision was that we uh, still have yet to run out of diapers. Having tangible needs met has enabled us to be emotionally and spiritually available in this season. And the same community continues to surround our family with prayer and support. And then they sent a picture of how um, they entered into uh, their home after going to get the um, foster child. And a member had access to the home and they came and dumped all of these supplies in. So when they came in, they had everything that they needed. That's true religion. Listen, hear me very clearly. We are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone. But a faith without works is dead. And on a day of judgment, as your pastor, I am going to give an account for the gospel that I preached and the message that I preached. And I don't want one member of Sojourn who says that they are a covenant member of our church to be separated to the left. We have to see that a faith that is genuine faith works. It moves towards the hurting. It cares about the immigrant. It cares about the uh, the refugee. And there are ministries all throughout Louisville who are trying to work to those ends. And you can partner with them. We can put some on the screen. There's no excuse why as Christians we can't actively be involved. But the key to living out our faith is stewardship. It doesn't happen by passivity. It happens by us actively taking an account to our gifts and our talents. 
and a surrendering to God by faith saying, Lord, I'm afraid, I'm scared, I feel lonely, I feel insecure, but I know that you are living on the inside of me. God, help me to manage my money well. Help me to steward my time well. Help me to steward my relationships well so that I can crash into heaven saying, Lord, what a ride, and not cruise into it or be called to go to his left. And the power to live this type of life does not come from ourselves. It comes from Jesus. John chapter 15, whoever abides in me and I in in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The way in which we bear this type of fruit and care about those who are in prison and those who are hungry and those who are hurting is by cultivating a vibrant relationship with Jesus, who is a literal person who is seated seated on the right hand side of God. It's by praying. It's by fasting. It's by reading your word. It's by living in community with other believers. And our motivation is what Christ has done for us. 2 Corinthians 2, 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, for your sake, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Every Sunday we celebrate the fact that Jesus, who was king of the universe, became poor so that we who were spiritually poor could become spiritually rich by taking a meal together. The night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he blessed it and broke it, said, this is my body broken for you. He took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood shed for you. Christian, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you preach, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Um, Those of you who are uh, guests in front of you, there is a communion cup. You can take the wafer. Knowing that it represents the body of Jesus and the juice knowing that it represents the blood of Jesus. Jesus has not just saved you from something. He saved you to something. And you experience maximum joy when you abide in him and when you live in the way that he's called you to live. Care for the poor. Care for the immigrant. Care for the refugee. Care for the missionary. Care for your neighbor. Just as Christ has cared for you. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.